0: I'm really excited to be here today with Mike and Mark, uh, Dr. Michael Levin and Dr. Mark Solms. Dr. Solms is known for his use of psychoanalytic methods in contemporary neuroscience, and he's author of the marvelous book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, which we talked about before on this channel. And he's also a professor at the University of Cape Town and the director of the neuropsychology program there and awards too numerous to mention, I'll say. It's a long list of awards that he's got. And Dr. Michael Levin is the principal investigator at the Levin Lab at Tufts University, director of the Allen Discovery Center there, and also the Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology. He's also active in leadership at three journals, Bioelectricity, Collective Intelligence, and Laterality. And I know these two have a lot to talk to each other about because I asked them to give me some questions and they gave me some amazing questions, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we do, I wanted to talk to them about an idea I've been tossing around and get them to um, give their opinions about it. Well, not your opinion. Exactly. I'd like you to talk about it from your respective perspectives. Um, I think this whole issue of opponent processing Because part of what we're going to talk about later is AI. And I know opponent processing is very important in AI. But I think opponent processing kind of works throughout the universe (laughs) in a lot of different levels. And um, one example I could give for our viewers is just the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems, where the sympathetic system is biased towards looking for and interpreting evidence that you should raise your level of arousal while the parasympathetic system is biased towards trying to find evidence that you should reduce your level of arousal. Now, the way that John Verbeke talks about this in his awakening from the meaning crisis is that these two are opposed in their goals, but interdependent in their function, optimizing between systems that are working different goals, but integrated in their function so that the system constantly self-organizes and thereby adapts its fittedness to the environment. Um, Owen Barfield, who um, was a contemporary of the Inklings, um, wrote a lot about the, the evolution of language. And in there, he talks about these two opposing ideas of accuracy and expression. And I think that that binary also works in a lot of different levels, accuracy and expression. And um, another good example of opponent processing is marriage. <laughs> because I think you have these these two opposing views, but if they work together, you have the opposing po- uh, pressure and then you have the connecting pressure. And when they're working together, you get the uh, benefit of the creativity that comes out of that system. So I'm wondering if you see that kind of thing in your departments in the kind of work that you do. And if you could kind of toss that idea around with each other.
1: Well, uh, let me dive in. Uh, I, I mean, certainly I agree with you that uh, the, the, the concept uh, is, is uh, of fundamental importance. Um, the concept of opponent processing as some uh, and you also mentioned uh, artificial intelligence so within the sort of computational neuroscience world, um I think that the the um, duality between explore, explore and exploit you know uh, is, is comes to mind as a as a fundamental example um, in, in, where a system and uh, like an organism uh, on the one hand Uh, needs to exploit the resources that are available and and its behavior, its policies um, are directed to doing so. But in doing so, you are not aware of the bigger picture. Um, And so sometimes it's better to not go for a short-term win and rather go and see what's what's on the other side, what's over the hill. Um, You might discover that there uh, are, are far greater riches than uh, resources uh, in, in the sense of riches, you know, than, than are in front of your nose. And so, and, and, and down at a, at a uh, neurobiological level, um, this comes to um, the, what, what Jaak-Panksepp called the seeking system, the, the mesocortical, uh, mesolimbic dopamine system, which which works homeostatically like all of these Basic uh, affective systems do, but it works in a kind of in the opposite way to how one normally thinks of uh, homeostasis. In other words, it positively engages with uncertainty. So its homeostatic set point is, yes, I'm uh, I don't know about this. This is new. This is unknown to me. Uh, let me let me head towards that rather than away from that, uh, rather than moving away from uncertainty. So it's a fascinating. System uh, in the brain of, of fundamental importance to how how we all function. Um, then uh, one other thought before I hand over to Mike in in the same sort of general ballpark of of, of computational neuroscience is um, is um, the 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 duality between um, accuracy and complexity, or rather, perhaps I should say accuracy and simplicity. You know, on the one hand. So accuracy always comes with complexity costs, Um, so you can have an overly complex model, an an overly complex uh, uh, predictive model, an overly complex uh, 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 way of uh, 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 modeling the world that you have to survive in. and uh, it, it brings you great complex I mean great accuracy but, but you know you've just got too big a model and it's uh, the, 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 the the developing and servicing of such a model ends up overfitting the world and so uh, you you want to, what you want like Einstein said is we want things to be as simple as possible but no simpler than that um, so you want a model that's that's efficient uh, that generalizes um, that you don't have to have a different a whole new uh, complex set of assumptions in order to deal with each and every eventuality. You want to have something which generalizes. So, but that comes at, with accuracy costs. Um, so those are, those are the first two examples uh, within my world that com- come to mind as illustrating the point that you're making, n- namely that these sorts of opponent processes understood very broadly uh, are, are, are of ubiquitous importance.
2: Yeah, um, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, as, as soon as you asked that question, I was also thinking explore-exploit, and I think, uh, you know, Mark described it beautifully. So I think um, w- one thing I could add is a different kind of example of explore-exploit, which is this, this question of uh, how seriously does evolution and development take prior information? So, for example, uh, one, one thing that we know in development is that there is amazing plasticity. So if if we make uh, so-called Picasso tadpoles where all the craniofacial organs are in the wrong place, so the eyes on the side of the head, the jaws are off to the, to the other side, everything is scrambled. What we find is that these or, these animals still make largely perfectly normal frogs because all of the different parts of the face will move around through novel paths that they normally don't take. And sometimes they, in fact, go too far and have to come double back a little bit, but they keep doing it until they land in the correct orientation. So what you learn from this is that uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the genome of the frog doesn't build a machine that uh, is hardwired to move every piece of the face a correct distance and that's it. But in fact, it makes some sort of error minimization scheme that can get the job done even when things start out in, in weird uh, configurations. And we have many other amazing examples of that. And so, so, that's, so that's very interesting because it, it looks like what the process of evolution produces is not something that simply locks on to past Solutions to this environment, let's say how to be a frog. You know everything you need to be a successful frog, and just sort of executes on that exactly the same each time. But it but it but it makes a um, a machine that's actually much more complicated and is able to uh, deal with novel circumstance and to uh, solve new problems that uh, that it hadn't had before. And again, many many interesting examples. And so. So that that uh, kind of that, that balance, right? So, so how much do you lock in on the lessons of past uh, environments and what you've learned from selection and past generations versus how much do you put into make it being a general purpose problem solving device, which again has lots of costs associated with that, but in fact, enormous capabilities for uh, adaptive response to new circumstances. So that again, I see I see that as well as, this, as, as a balance of explore, exploit just on a different scale.
0: But would it fair to say that a cell knows more that it can execute based on any one rule it might be given? Um, I mean, and when I say rule, I mean like when you inject a little bit of electricity to kind of send a new signal and then the cells will go off and do something entirely novel. um, Do you think it's because there's more capability in the cell? There's, there's more information in the cell than it can execute at any one given time it, there's a reserve of information and knowledge
2: knowledge i'm using that roughly but it's fair um i would say i would say uh, slightly different well i would say two things one is that most of what I'm going to talk about uh, in this context is not, are not properties of single cells, they're properties of cell networks. So these are, these are I mean, cells do it too, but, but most of my really good examples are at the tissue and organ level. So it's sort of collections of cells doing interesting things. And, 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 I, and, and you're absolutely right because what, what we have with these collectives, uh, they're a kind of collective intelligence that navigates different problem spaces. So they navigate morphological space, they navigate physiological space, all these spaces. And they have uh, interesting policies for navigating that space that allows them to exhibit all kinds of um, problem-solving behavior, but we don't see most of it. You, know, you, put, you put them in a particular context and uh, you will see one kind of thing that they can do. They absolutely could have done other things if you had asked a different question of them. If you put them in a, in a different environment with a different challenge, you would have seen many capabilities. So almost universally, I think with very few exceptions, these things for sure have the ability to do more than what they're doing at any one moment. They have different ways they can navigate those problem spaces.
0: Well, so this raises another question for me, and this will be my last question before I let you get started on your questions. So in in both the case of the, I I know, um, Mark, when you talk about the, the brainstem being kind of the the springboard or the source of consciousness because of that element of homeostasis, um, trying to balance values. Mm. Um, And then we have these cells that in community can do these amazing things. It seems to me like there has to be some kind of language there, even if it's a very simple language, that something like this or that, here or there, now and not now. Um, So what accounts for that? It's choice, it's definitely choice, right? And it's some kind of language that allows them to communicate this with each other.
1: Um, If I'm understanding you correctly, uh, you're talking about um, the fact that we have multiple homeostats, Um, you know, we, 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 We complex organisms have many different needs uh, that uh, all of which have to be met, each in their own right. Um, But you can only do so much at a time, you know, so there's a sort of action bottleneck. Uh, You have multiple needs, some of which can be um, simultaneously met. Um, Most of our autonomic um, functioning uh, it's not done in in series; it's done in parallel. But when it comes to the um, w- what's called allostasis, you know, the, the having to do things in the outside world in order to maintain your homeostasis, uh, then you have this action bottleneck, and so there has to be a prioritization uh, of of your needs. Um, and and I I personally think that has a hell of a lot to do with what ultimately leads to consciousness. Um, What is prioritized um, is the need uh, where you use the word choice. You see, I don't think that there has to be a selection. Um, That's not quite the same thing as the folk psychological meaning of the word choice, which is something deliberative. Um, But the the, the need uh, that you have um, the least uh, uh, pre-prepared policy as to how to meet this need here and now, uh, that's the one that needs the most choice in, this, in that sense of the word. In other words, there's the greatest uncertainty as to what must I do so I can relegate these other ones to automaticity. I've got predictions that are more or less viable. Uh, you know, and We're speaking about a cross-section in time. So at this point in time, those can be relegated to automaticity. This one, uh, I need to, uh, as it were, palpate my uncertainty. I need to feel my way through the problem um, and, and, and decide, is this working or isn't this working? I think the, the very basis of choice um, is, uh, is being able to change your mind. Um, so you know you have a policy and you are you, you palpating your uncertainties, in other words, your degree of confidence. Uh, in is this working or isn't this working and how I link that with consciousness is I think that feeling in in the sense of valence in other words this is going badly or this is going well is how an organism registers how an organism that has this functionality uh, how it registers how well it's doing Um, so this is going badly this is going well in other words I increase my confidence in this policy. I decrease my confidence in this policy, um, and uh, you know. So, so if things are turning out as expected, that's good. Uh, if uncertainty prevails, that's bad. And so, this is the valence aspect uh, of affect, which I think is so fundamental to consciousness. But it, it's, it consciousness is not just valence; it also has a multiplicity of qualities. Um, And this comes back to the the starting point that you raised, that there's a multiplicity uh, of of homeostats, a multiplicity of needs. They each have to be met in their own right. Um, And so how we register which need um, is being prioritized is what it feels like. So So hunger feels different from thirst because there's a different kind of problem here. So there's not just one continuous variable of need. There are categories of need, and I think that's the ground zero basis of qualia, uh, because categorical variables are qualitatively distinguished from each other. I hope I'm not over answering your question.
0: Oh, not at all. No, no, no. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. That that's categorical but variables are qualitatively distinguished.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, like, you can't say you can't say um, I've got eight out of 10 of sleepiness at this point in time, and uh, two out of 10 of thirst. Uh, So that makes a total of 10 out of 20 of need. Uh, So all I need to do is sleep, you know, and then I'll reduce the total total, uh, quantity of need. So that's reducing them to one continuous variable, one common denominator. Uh, It doesn't work like that biologically. You have to drink and you have to sleep you know, and you have to uh, uh, eat and you have to uh, defecate and you have to urinate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So each one of those needs has to be met in their own right. Um, although they all are needs, in other words, they're all reducible to, um, well, within my frame of reference, you could say they're all contributing to the free energy of the system, um, but, you, but but free energy minimization uh, as a continuous variable is not enough. You need to factorize it uh, according to these different um, categories of need because they all have to be met in their own right. And and the, the main point that I uh, was, the two main points I was trying to make there, the one is that, that cat, the, the, the qualitative distinction between these categories of need uh, is a, a fundamental basis it's it's sort of it sort of lends itself to the very idea of there being qualities in the mind that the, these are different types of thing um and the 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 one that's prioritized is the feeling that now comes to consciousness um and then the the palpating of how well is my current policy my current action program uh, doing is is tethered to the, the the valence within that particular affective category and this this i think is Is fundamental to how consciousness works
0: well if we take that down to the cell level mike when the cells are communicating with each other to get a task done the eye is the eye is in the wrong place on the staff head and they, they have to move it into the right place it seems like there would be a lot of tasks involved with accomplishing that one goal and um how do the cells work together to prioritize what step to take first and what step to take next? And I mean, how do they communicate to each other?
2: Yeah, 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 so so I want to be clear that if I had the exact answer to this, uh, you know, we would we would then have uh, you know regenerative medicine and uh, you know uh, and so on. So so we we are far from a, from a complete answer to this. But um, basically, everything that Mark was just saying is exactly uh, uh, pertinent to the case that we're talking about. So these, this, this system. Is, a, is, is what we call a multi-scale competency architecture meaning that at every level so the the gene regulatory networks are optimizing certain things and trying to reach certain goals and the uh the the cytoskeletal system in the uh the cells themselves and the and the, and the tissues that make up uh that, that are made up by cells and so on all of these things simultaneously are competing and cooperating towards specific goals Uh, one of the things that, I mean, we know some of how they communicate. So they communicate, of course, chemically, but also electrically. So they form electrical networks that are able to learn from experience and store memories that, um, guide future behavior. And so they navigate these various problem spaces, uh, in that way. Uh, there, um, there are all sorts of, uh, competitive interactions. So during embryogenesis, the different organs and tissues actually compete for, resources, both metabolic and informational, even though they're all genetically identical and supposedly are supposed to cooperate. In fact, they do compete with each other. And so the, uh, the final product that we see and including the failure modes. So there's all kinds of ways this can go wrong, both in, in development and regeneration, aging, and so on. All of this is, uh, uh, the result of a very complex uh, cooperative set of cooperative and competitive interactions, both within each level and, and across levels, right? And, and what we see is the sort of the final, uh, the final result, but all, all of these things are trying to optimize certain, uh, co- certain uh, measurables in their own problem space that they, that they work in.
0: Okay, that gives me enough to chew on. So now now let's see what you wanna ask each other. Um, Mike, you wanted to ask Mark, um, well, you, you, you brought up your questions. Why don't you go ahead and pick one of your questions and ask him.
2: Sure. I mean, so, so one thing I'm really interested in is to, uh, kind of, um, get your take on the very earliest steps in, of, 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 uh, of, of being, of being an organism and let's say a human. So, so I like to work it backwards. I like to, rather than, I, I think, you know, when we start off asking if various simple things our cognitive conscious whatever we get into a lot of trouble so i like to work it backwards we start with an adult human where i think we can agree uncontroversially that whatever uh, consciousness and cognition is we have it whatever that is and then and then we can sort of work it backwards so we can work it all we can we can follow very slowly all the way back to when we were a quiescent oocyte right a, a, a you know just a just a simple cell a collection of quiescent chemicals that eventually Became fertilized, became a, 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 a collection of cells, and then sort of embryogenesis and that is slowly developed into a particular, uh, into a particular advanced form. And so, I would just love to kind of hear your take on that on that process and where, uh, what what you think the important milestones on that are, because. To me, where where it leads me is is to an abandonment of binary categories. So, you know, I I don't like questions like "Is it conscious or isn't it conscious?" You know, is it? Uh, I I find that the gradual nature of development and evolution really uh, require um, a kind of continuum view. So, I would just love to hear what you think about that in particular, and and what the waypoints on that continuum might be, the important ones. Um- thank
1: you uh, so I, I I would start with you know so we even at the level of an individual cell you're talking about something a self-organizing system that is trying to carry on existing uh, therefore um, a, a, a homeostatic system yeah. um so the the basic mechanism uh, the basic principle uh, this is why I think your question is a very good one the basic pr- problem space as you call it you know uh, of the single cell is not that radically different from the problem space of the of the mature organism and of the mature human organism. Uh, if we taking this the, ourselves as the model example, as you're suggesting, we do because we at least know uh, that we ourselves have conscious cognition. And your question is about at what point in this in this continuum, from the single cell or from the fertilized uh, single cell, uh, do we get to uh, to we get to a, a conscious uh, cognitive being. Um, so we start with the raw ingredients that I think end up being um, the, the fundamental mechanisms, even at the at the level of the uh, at the level of the mature adult uh, conscious human. Um, self-organizing system a homeostatic system, a system that is, uh, that, that, that's that problem is how do I continue to exist, even if it doesn't think that and uh, reflectively. And so I'm already beginning to answer your question by saying, I do not believe for a moment uh, that the single cell uh, has thought processes, but it has something which is in the, of the kind that are going to become thought processes. In other words, a problem that it has to solve, the problem of how do I continue to exist? even though it's not articulated as such, it's just a blind mechanism that drives the behavior um, of of that single cell. Um, I think that that is an important point, you know, that that's your point. Uh, I I take it from what I've read of your work uh, and I've read your work with very great interest. I think that that's a profoundly important point that we uh, we can speak of the cognition uh, of the single cell. Um, and 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 uh, later we'll talk. I hope uh, about whether uh, it's it's reasonable to draw a distinction between um, biological and non-biological cognition uh, when it comes to uh, if if this is what it's about. Uh, it's not something that's exclusive to biological self-organizing systems. Um, so homeostasis um, and the complex of, compl- uh, 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 increasing. A complexifying of the organism, uh, making it better and better at doing that, at at being, at, at having more and more cap- capabilities um, in, ter- in 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 terms of solving that problem of continuing to exist uh, in the in, in in the environmental niche, that it, in more environmental niches, in a multiplicity of niches for the same organism, and so on. All of this demands greater complexity in terms of the the, the um, what we are calling, uh, I say we, because I think you and I share that view, uh, the cognition, uh, the, 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 the intelligent behavior of the organism. And it doesn't even have to have a nervous system. And I agree with you there too. I think that we can talk, uh, in, in fact, I think we should talk um, of these things as being fundamentally of the same kind. Um, uh, I, I do think that something happens something special happens when it comes to the nervous uh, at, at organisms with a with nervous system and so now since we're speaking about human beings i think uh, at that stage in embryonic development that that we are that that the, the 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 um neural plate develops i don't think at this point we have we have consciousness uh, i think that we've had cognition even before the neural plate uh it uh, 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 becomes uh, distinguishable um but this is the, the possibility of a nervous system which has this kind of overarching integrative function once you have a complex organism and it has so many different um component needs uh the, to have some sort of meta homeostatic mechanism something which 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 uh, seems to be the basic function of the nervous system um but I don't think that uh, that every creature with a nervous system is conscious. Um, so uh, I, I think non uh, that creatures without nerve or, or the or the fetus before it has a, 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 a developed a, a nervous system is a cognitive problem-solving uh, system. Once it has a nervous system, there's the possibility of a higher order of integration uh, between the component parts. Um, but since we're speaking in in maturational terms or gestational terms, I would also say that uh, because the fetus is uh, embedded within the the, the body uh, of its its mother, um, its its needs are are pretty much met um, for it uh, and there's not a hell of a lot of surprise um, uh, and, and there's not a hell of a lot that it can do. So I think that at this stage the problems are, 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 are pretty automatically met. Um, and I think that consciousness, that once we start getting to consciousness, um, it's once you outside of that uh, kind of uh, problem space. In other words, you start having to navigate situations for which you do not have pre-prepared predictions as to how to solve the problem. Um, and. Uh, I think it's fairly obvious why it would be a great adaptive advantage uh, to be able to solve problems <coughs> for which you don't have any, uh, uh, any um, uh, innate preparedness. So I think it's at that stage uh, that we start speaking about consciousness, which for me, uh, in its most elementary form is just feeling, just affective feeling. Uh, in other words, the, the, the organism becoming aware of its own needs by feeling them. Uh, And I said earlier on in our discussion, um, when I was answering Karen's question, uh, that um, uh, what I think that uh, being able to feel how well you're doing, uh, what that contributes is the possibility of choice. Choice is what is required if you're going to navigate an unpredicted environment. So, um, we can come back to at what stage in fetal development and what aspect of the development of the nervous system makes that possible but i'm just wanting to state the general principle here that i think that it's primarily in postnatal life once you start having to fend for yourself uh, and once you have the motoric capacity to be able to navigate any environment little i mean every for for, for every little human uh, that this is a novel environment uh, but you have you have innate, Reflexive uh, predictions as to how to deal with much of what you're expected to deal with at that stage, uh, but I think even uh, even in utero there will be unexpected developments. That, uh, I think that there's the possibility of there being some need felt, um, but I don't. I, I really don't know. Obviously, all of these things, as you say, we're talking about about gradients. We're talking about. You know not not binary situations i just think theoretically there's the possibility i don't think that 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 it's impossible for uh, uh, for a a a, a a a human fetus in utero to start to feel the occasional something but i think that feeling comes into its own um, once we are having to fend for ourselves in in, in the outside world uh, and and having to do so by developing our own policies um where uh, where our reflexes and instincts reach their limits. So where reflexive and, and instinctual uh, uh, responses to homeostatic deviations do not achieve the desired outcome, uh, then the, the, the possibility to be able to, uh, we were talking about uh, explore and exploit earlier, you know, to be able to explore new possibilities, to try out by trial and error, Uh, different different, um, uh, ways of acting uh, that might bring me back into my uh, uh, preferred states, back within my homeostatically viable bounds. I think that being able to feel your way through how well or badly you're doing um, in in that trial and error situation, uh, that's the beginning of a a conscious being. Um, the, I said, I'll say something about the machinery as Karen said earlier, I believe the bulk of the machinery we're talking about is in the brainstem. So, you know, we're talking about a very rudimentary nervous system that's got this functionality. Um, and I, in other words, we're saying any vertebrate has this functionality, and I don't by any means mean to imply that only vertebrates can, but th- we know that the vertebrate brains, uh, you know, the, the, the periaqueductal gray, uh, the reticular activating system and the uh, and the surrounding, uh, 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 obviously including also diencephalic structures like the hypothalamus. That this is all that you need to have a sentient being, uh, in in the sense of raw feeling. Uh, but then you know what what's built on top of that. Uh, if I may oversimplify by saying built on top of that, you know what I mean, um, is is also terribly important. So for example, the ability to not only by trial and error feel your way through a problem, but to be able to think your way through a problem uh, by by imagining what would happen if I were to do that without actually having to take the biological risk of trying it uh, is another enormous adaptive advantage. And as much as I say that consciousness in its most rudimentary form is simply raw feeling, I don't. I don't uh, want to pretend for a moment that uh, the cognitive, conscious thinking, deliberative, sort of reflective kinds of consciousness that of which we humans are so uh, so you know uh, we have such unique prowess in those departments that they they add a hell of a lot more um, and are are a very important part of what consciousness does. Um, so uh, with the development. Um, of a of the of the cortex and the capacity to think, in other words, to generate virtual realities and to navigate uh, uh, um, uh, counterfactuals uh, over a uh, uh, in some with some temporal depth you know I think that's another very important part of what we mean by a conscious human that 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 capacity and of course those are also not uh, they're not uniquely human capacities. Um, what becomes uniquely human, more or less, and again, I I agree with you totally. We don't want to draw any binary distinctions here. But you know, with the development of language uh, and all that that does in terms of the the, the capacity for uh, reflective thought um, and abstract thought, uh, etc., uh, you know, then then we have a fully fledged human form of consciousness. So uh, to summarize um, uh, what I'm saying, Mike. Uh, I think that we have a, a, a problem solving uh, a, 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 any, even a single cell uh, is a is a, a self-organizing system, which has a problem that it has to solve, namely to continue to exist. And we do this by homeostasis, and that is a form of cognition. Uh, and as it gets more complex, so the, the organism, so it has more complex forms of Self-organizing behavior, which we should call cognition, even if it's not nervous. Um, and then once we get to the nervous system, there's this higher integrative capacity of uh, 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 the, the prioritization business, for example, that Karen was asking about earlier. The meta homeostatic uh, functions um, that I think that a mind comes into being in the sense of a conscious mind uh, once there's once, once you start to feel how well you're doing, and this is only really needed once you start having to fend for yourself in an uncertain environment. And then the, the cognitive forms of conscious, the conscious forms of cognition that that, that, that are added to and elaborate um, the raw capacity to feel um, that, that those uh, develop with, with the development of cortex, both um, ontogenetically and phylogenetically, and ultimately ultimately, you know, its language. So that's how I see it. Um, I, 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 and implicit in what I'm saying is also that I think the crucial, um, the, the crucial problem, without wanting to make it a binary again, I really don't want to. I think the crucial transition um, is not so much from an, a non-cognitive to a cognitive organism. I think you can talk about cognition all the way down. Uh, it's the transition is at what point does it start to feel like something to be that organism. Um, That's, that's when we start speaking about minds in the sense that we sentient experiencing human beings think of our mental life. I think it's that this comes into being with,
2: with, with felt affect. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, you know, one one thing that uh, I've been thinking a lot about lately is is this idea that we are, because because our our primary sense organs point outward in three dimensional space, we are very good at noticing problems and uh, intel and and various degrees of uh, intelligent systems solving those problems. So so medium sized objects moving at medium speeds in in the three dimensional space, so we can see. And as you say, you know, from that perspective, the uh, the, the fetus doesn't have much to do, there's not much it can do, everything is sort of there, and, and all the all the excitement starts, you know, sort of later on when it has to navigate that that world. But but I, I think that uh p- part of the fact that we're so wired to to uh really pay attention to that three-dimensional space is that we really I think neglect some other problem spaces that are kind of uh v- that we don't have primary experience with. So so for example. Um, if we had imagined that if we were born with a sense of uh, a direct sense of your blood chemistry, that you could, you could feel all the different parameters of your blood chemistry and you could feel all the things that your pancreas and your liver and so on were doing to navigate that physiological space every day. I think, I think we would be, we would be very um, in, in a much better place to recognize those things as uh, having some, some degree of competent, intelligent behavior in those spaces. And I think for the embryo, One of the things that happens is while probably the metabolics are taken care of and the behavioral stuff is taken care of, what's really not taken care of by the maternal organism at all is the journey through Morpha space. So you start off basically as a, as a, you know, as a collection of, of cells, and you have to end up being an incredibly complicated organism, which is this really, really difficult journey through a, a space with all kinds of structure through, through it. And, and you have to really get to a pretty narrow region of that space to be a normal, uh, uh, sort of a typical adaptively shaped human. And that's that navigation of that space. And um, we're, we're investigating this uh, very uh, sort of uh, actively right now involves all sorts of uh, problem solving and stress responses and all kinds of things going on that are not apparent in three-dimensional activity, but are apparent if you were to look at the configuration of the body through that morphospace. And so I wonder, uh, and because these are open questions, we don't, we don't know, but I wonder be- because a lot of the same kinds of processes that, that you mentioned that happen in the nervous system, are happening in non-neural cells using in fact uh, the same uh, electrical signaling neurotransmitters all the same you know serotonin is doing things from the two cell stage it's already they're already using all all the same machinery and they and and it's and it's using it to to resolve these problems very actively in that space and so i don't know and uh, you know we'll get to i mean you had some amazing questions that we can we can sort of discuss i i don't know if the same if if it's not the case that the same kinds of dynamics that give the, uh, the, the, the affect and the, and the qualia and everything that you're talking about, you know, what is it like to be, I, I don't know that that doesn't exist in this other, in this other space. You know, um, we, we don't know, of course we have no, no primary experience of that, but I think that we should be, we should be open to thinking about exactly these kinds of issues that I think very plausibly what you described as being responsible for some kind of um, primary consciousness, uh, all of that is happening in other spaces and 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 you know um we, we're just not used to thinking about that in robotics too you know when you when, when you say robot you think of a robot that navigates three-dimensional space well smart insulin pumps and various implants that handle your neurotransmitter levels and things like this those are really robotics that navigate physiological spaces and other kinds of spaces too we're, we're just not used to thinking about it that way but i think I think there's a lot of intelligence happening that uh, at some point may or may not be associated with some kind of primary affect, even if it's not 3D physical action. I'd like to
0: jump in here and just connect these two ideas with something that came to my mind. And that is that um, Mark was talking about how well that that the, the affect is how well or how badly you're doing. And yeah. Mike, you were talking about um, that the the cells have some idea of how to get that eye into the right place because they'll they'll go yeah. beyond, but then they'll come back. Yeah. Absolutely so there, right. So there yeah. is a right place. There is something that is correct in both cases. How well or her, how badly you're doing means that you're judging that against some correctness. Most and so, certainly. So we get into this problem of the map and the territory, yeah. and the the cells in union at least, seem to have some way of understanding, I'm using the word loosely, understanding where that territory is so that they're adapting to the reality of that territory. And in the same way, I think that the, this whole issue of homeostasis is adapting to the reality of the territory. So another way I think about this opponent processing is the organism on one side and the anomaly on the other side. So the organism is always having to adapt to anomaly. And, and those two are also in opponent processing. And um, I just wonder what you guys think about that.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I had actually meant to, to talk about this a little bit, and I, fr- I forgot. Um, this, this issue of how well you're doing is absolutely critical, because that navigation and morphospace space requires the system to uh, be estimating an error function and in fact, the stress response, long before there's any behavior, there are stress, stress responses in, in embryonic development that uh, are related to uh, how far or how close you are from your goal in morphospace. space. And we know you can see this very clearly when, the, for example, a salamander, uh, you amputate a limb, it will, the cells will immediately regrow a new limb. And then the most magical part about it is that it stops. Well, when does it stop? It stops when a correct salamander limb is complete. That's when everything stops. So this system, like, like normal development, like regulative development, when an early embryo is cut in half and you get two monozygotic twins, right? Because each half can tell that, that it's missing in, in a large chunk and then regenerates it. Um, all of these things require an estimate of error and a constant feedback loop and, and maybe even, you know, sort of meta, but most, most likely a metacognitive loops about how well am I doing and, um, uh, you know, where, where, where am I towards because, because from the perspective of each embryonic stage, the prior stage is basically a birth defect. Development is a series of regenerative events that, that go from stage to stage by repairing what we are now into what we're supposed to be. And, and that, that target morphology, which is basically the, the set point of the homeostatic process, whereas you know in physiology, you might be thinking of a, of a scalar for a set point, like a pH or a temp- body temperature or something like that. In development, that set point is a rough um, uh, 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 location in morphospace. And, you, and 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 these tissues are constantly evaluating their um, their distance uh, from that, and of course that process is not foolproof. You can easily uh, mess it up and get birth defects and things like that. But but what they're trying to do is uh, is get to this is get to this uh, to, to to the correct configuration. And we now know that at least one of the mechanisms that stores that configuration, because you might ask, well, how does the tissue know what shape it's supposed to be? At least one of the mechanisms that stores it are bioelectrical pattern memories. I mean, literally the way that it's, that, that uh, we, we took all the techniques from, from neuroscience, you can apply that to non-neural cells and you can see, you can now read out the way that people are trying to do neural decoding to read memories and things from a living brain. We can now do this in, in certain cases in the tissue and we can see, for example, regenerating flatworm fragments. We can see the memory engram that tells them how many heads they're supposed to have. And better yet, we can rewrite that electrical information to tell a fragment that actually a good worm should have two heads. And that is exactly what the cells build. And it's a very good memory because afterwards, fragments of that worm will continue to form two heads and on and on without any changes, no genetic changes, no nothing wrong with the genome. It's 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 literally a resetting of the of the electrically uh mediated uh t- target morphology information the memory of where in morphospace they're supposed to be there are different attractors we can push them we can push them to attractors belonging to other species so i can take a piece of um of a flat of a completely genetically wild type flatworm and confuse that uh, that navigation process so that it ends up building ahead of a different species 100 million years evolutionary distance with the exact same cells nothing wrong with the genome and and so that 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 navigation uh is 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 very related to this question of how how well am I doing? Yeah.
1: So the, I think what we're talking about um, that there's a there's a continuum here um, between uh, at the one end. Let's start at the top end. My most of my colleagues remember I'm a neuropsychologist. Uh, most of my colleagues, neuropsychologists, cognitive neuroscientists, um, they they are corticocentric when it comes to consciousness. Yeah. You know, so it, not just nervous system centric, you know, they're corticocentric. And, and in fact, um, a good many of them, uh, it, it's, it's, it still really surprises me. I can't get my head around it if you'll excuse the pun. But, you know, uh, many really respected uh, leading cognitive and affective neuroscientists and neuropsychologists still think that it's only human beings, only human cortex. Uh, 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 prefrontal cortex with language attached, uh, then you have consciousness. So that's the one extreme. Um, uh, it, 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 it likes, it, it, I'll give a very famous example, Joseph Ledoux. Joseph Ledoux, an affective neuroscientist who studies these subcortical uh, circuits um, uh, and has done for decades and made such fundamental contributions to our knowledge of, of how the emotional brain works. He believes that all of that is entirely unconscious, what's going on in the amygdala and and, and other subcortical survival circuits, as he calls them, uh, until the output of all of this is read out uh, in prefrontal cortex and literally labeled. This is fear. Only at that point does the feeling of fear appear. Um, So that's the one extreme. At the other extreme, we have panpsychists. Uh, like um, like Nagel and and, and, and Chalmers seems to have gone that way uh, too. and and so many other you know uh, um, r- really uh, good minds um, uh, believe that everything has got a little bit of consciousness. You, you're talking. You're somewhere in, in between, Mike. When you speak about you know, uh, should should we not talk about this as problem-solving behavior? Is it not a matter of feeling your way through? um, the problems of morphogenesis and so on. Um, you know, they go way deeper than that. And they say a grain of sand has got a little bit of grain of sand consciousness. <laughs> so if, if we, if we take those two extremes, um, my main, uh, my bread and butter uh, is fighting uh, up, up here with my colleagues, uh, who are, who are claiming it's all cortical. And, um, when I draw attention to the just absolute oodles of evidence uh, for that, I mean, for one piece of very dramatic evidence is hydranencephalic children born with no cortex whatsoever. You know, the the uh, all the evidence is that they are feeling beings. I mean, you know, it, it, you have to just uh, you have to just not want to see that uh, to, to 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 not see it. Um, so my battles are there, you know, I'm trying to persuade my colleagues uh, that uh, the cortex is not where it's at, uh, that, that it goes, uh, it's a lot more basic than that. Consciousness uh, is something much simpler. Uh, and I don't mean to, to, when I say simpler, I don't mean simple, you know, consciousness um, is a, a much more f- a rudimentary function than these cortical functions. It's a much deeper function in the brain It goes way back. Uh, and then I said earlier, you know we there's every reason to believe uh, once you understand that those are the crucial circuits that you know that every vertebrate is conscious, every vertebrate, and then you look at the behavior of cephalopods and insects and so on, and you've got to say there's just no good reason to believe that they're not conscious so those are the battles I'm fighting I, I want to say that uh, in order to contextualize you know w- w- what I'm going to say now in response to what you said, Mike, because I'm on the side of Let's try to, you know, let's let's not be so anthropocentric. Let's not be so corticocentric. Let's not be, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's, 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 let's go down, 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 down. But I don't find myself in, in, in sympathy at all with panpsychists. So, you know, it's a matter of trying to find where, where, where do I locate myself here? And I think I'm much more in sympathy with you than with my corticocentric colleagues. Um, but I'm also much more in sympathy with you than panpsychists, assuming you're not a panpsychist, but we're still going to learn that in this this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So within that broad context, I'm a human being, I'm conscious, um, and I'm I'm aware that I'm not conscious of one of those, um, as as, uh, you were speaking of, if if only we were conscious of things like uh, blood gas balance, um, you know, then we wouldn't think of consciousness in such a three-dimensional state-space sense, that we would think of it as something utterly different. Well, actually, I, I think it is, it's affect. That's what affect is. Affect is not a three, does not have to do with three-dimensional space. It's got to do with the state of the organism. How am I doing in the sense of my homeostatic needs? Um, and so, so it, 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 I was just speaking about blood gases. You know, we're not normally aware of, res- of, of our regulation uh, of our blood gases, respiratory control is autonomic, um, until we find ourselves in, a, in an unexpected situation like a carbon dioxide filled room. Um, and then suddenly um, the air hunger, which is, which is consciousness of your blood gas balance, uh, you know, forces itself into consciousness. You have a, you have suffocation alarm um, and it, it's, uh, I, I think it says everything about what feeling is for uh, if we try and understand, well, why do you become conscious of, of, of your blood gas balance at, at, at that point in time? It's because now you don't know what to do. Uh, now, now you don't have a pre-prepared um, uh, prediction as to how to uh, regain homeostasis in, in relation to that particular need parameter. Now, I say I am a conscious human adult. Uh, I'm aware that my respiratory control is not normally conscious. I'm not normally aware, and, and, and I can go deeper than that, and I can say I'm not aware of my blood pressure regulation ever. Um, so uh, that, that does not deny the possibility, uh, and, and, and I think this is uh, along the lines of what you are saying, um, that prior to my becoming an adult corticalized human being, uh, when I was first solving these problems, uh, maybe at that point I was conscious uh, of um, these what what later become uh, purely autonomic functions. I, I don't exclude that possibility. That's why I wanted to do, make clear that I'm heading in your direction. I, I, I'm I'm I have sympathy with people who are saying don't 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 over uh, anthropomorphize and corticalize and n- neuralize and so on everything. Um, so I, I think it is possible. I really do think it's plausible. That, But, but I'm aware that actually me in my state, uh, I'm not aware of those things. I'm not conscious of those things. So what I'm saying is that there is a hell of a lot of those sorts of problems that you're talking about that are going on in me right here and now that I, in terms of my empirical capacity to observe whether I'm conscious of them or not, I have to say I'm not. So, you know, I think a lot of those sorts of things can go on unconsciously and do go on uh, unconsciously. And once we've solved the problem, which we might at one stage be conscious of, we then consolidate the solution and it becomes less conscious. It becomes more automatic. Um, So the fact that something is automatized at one point in development doesn't mean it always was uh, always was automatized and unconscious. But but. The, the processes that you were talking about, this is why I'm taking such pains to make sure that you know I'm on your side. Uh, the processes that you're describing, there's a relatively limited re- repertoire available uh, t- 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 to the organ, to the, to the uh, during the maturational process that you describe. And, and, I'm, I'm, and because there's a limited repertoire and because as you said, sometimes things go badly wrong, uh, because there's such a limited repertoire, you know you the, the 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 you can't deal with every eventuality you don't have the toolkit to be able to deal with eventualities outside of that repertoire um i, I I'm also open to the possibility that those things don't need to be felt. I think that if they are if they are naturally selected um, predictions uh, a repertoire of them is available to the evolving uh, maturing uh, uh, embryo uh, in, in all of these creatures that you're talking about, I can see all sorts of problem-solving that can be done without without this without the need for feeling. So I'm I'm you know I really have an open mind about it. Uh, I, I think as the, the 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 best that we can do um, is study very carefully the, beha- the, the 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 evidence for choice. You know, is there evidence for a choice having been made here? which was this particular organism's own solution to that problem, which has nothing to do with uh, what, what was given by natural selection.
2: Oh, and there are, there are great exam. I mean, there are fantastic examples of this. Um, uh, well, one, one example is that, uh, Normally, so, so let's take a, let's take a salamander and this, the salamander, um, these, they, they have these, um, uh, kidney tubules, you know, these little tubes. And if you take a cross section through that tubule, you see that there's usually about eight to 10 cells that make up the, 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 per, the circumference of this, of this tubule. Yeah? And they, the cells that work together to build this kind of like tube. So one thing, one thing that you can do is, uh, artificially make the, uh, early cells very large. In fact, the way you do that is by increasing the amount of DNA they have. And it's amazing that you can just just increase sixfold, eightfold times the normal genetic complement, no problem. The cells are fine, but the cells get very large. And as the cells get very large, what happens is that fewer and fewer of them will work together to make the exact same size tubule. And so the first choice they have to make based on how big they are, which is completely unexpected evolutionarily because that's not what standard newts are, they can figure out uh, how many cells there should be. And the most amazing thing happens when you make the cells truly gigantic. One single cell will bend around itself, leaving a hole in the middle, and make and make that nice tubule. And what's amazing about that is because uh, it it that's a completely different molecular mechanism. So instead of cell to cell communication, it's now cytoskeletal bending that enables it to do this. So so in a completely novel scenario, so so basically development uh, can't even trust that your cells are the right size. Never mind, can I trust? you know, what the environment is. You can't trust how much DNA you have. You can't trust how many cells there are because some may be cut away, to, you know, to make twins. You don't, you don't even know what, uh, what the size of your parts are going to be. Your cells might be gigantic. And what you need to do is find a different molecular mechanism that normally isn't used for this purpose at all and create the exact same structure, meaning navigate to that region of morphospace using a, using a different underlying molecular mechanism you know it's an amazing kind of like top-down causation because in the service of that anatomical uh large-scale anatomical property you can call up different molecular mechanisms so that's one example another example is uh these uh the xenobots that we make out of uh out of frog skin cells that basically these these completely wild type genetically unmodified skin cells taken out of their normal environment meaning away from the instructive cues of the rest of the cells and you get to find out what they actually want to do on their own. They actually want to make this self motile little protoorganism that has all kinds of behaviors and it can make copies of itself from loose skin cells that it finds in the environment and all this amazing stuff that it never normally does. Um, there's never been selection to be a good Xenobot. There's never been any Xenobots. These are all things that are done, you know, sort of on the fly within 48 hours, uh, all of these things come together. Uh, yeah. And so, and so different kinds of, of decision-making novel probably, you know, problem solving in novel scenarios. Uh, there are many, many examples of this in, 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 in development and, and, and regeneration and so on. And so my gut feeling is that, uh, while you and I, you know, we're here having this conversation with our advanced uh, sort of consciousnesses talking to each other. I think that our it's very likely to me that our bodies contain additional much sort of very different and, and, and in some ways inferior and in some ways uh, very equally complex uh, kinds of intelligences that we never hear from. So so we can tell each other. I mean, I feel like a unified single being, of course, as, as, as presumably do you. But there are other, I think there are others with with us that we just never hear from, they're not capable of language, not capable of speech, whether it's anything to be like them, I I have no idea how, you know, whether that's the case, but I think we are a collection of such we are not, it's not just us, you know, it's not just you and I in this, uh, in this, in this scenario, I think there are others in here. And I think some of that, if I, and I'm not an expert on this, but I believe that some of the early work on split brain, split brain patients already started to show us that, right? When, when, when you put, when when you, you put one, the, 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 language hemisphere to sleep, you find out that actually there are some opinions and some, some preferences and some other things that you normally never hear from, from that individual that are hanging around and just suppressed by the, you know, by the language that, that that's my understanding of some of that literature.
1: Well, I, I must emphasize again, you know, that uh, when it comes to me, you're pushing against an open door. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, mm. I really am sympathetic with with everything that you're saying. Um, I'm, I, 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 to me, it will be, it will require a very little adjustment of my basic orientation. You know, to, 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 to accept that the processes that you've just described uh, are, uh, um, uh, uh, um feeling your way through the problem a novel problem uh, I, I would be happy to uh, accept that my my own point of view starts with you know we, we have to start with just this simplest self-organizing system you know that that's that's the beginning of what becomes all of this marvelous stuff that we, that, that that is that is human mental life um and self-organizing systems are not even uh, you could you have pre biological self organizing systems. You know? So mm-hmm. I'm all for seeing the continuity. I think that this is how we can have a physical science uh, of of consciousness. Is precisely because it's not something magical and something special. It's it's something that emerges by degrees. So I'm I'm, I'm wholly on the same side uh, as you. However, just just because I want to keep an open mind, I also want to say that. Um, if what you were just talking about, so the cytoskeleton suddenly be- becoming the, the solution to the problem and that this is an entirely novel solution, is it not the case that every time you pack this additional DNA into the, make these super large cells, every time they will find the same solution? So there is, there is still a fixed repertoire there. It's not, that's not quite the same thing as choice in the sense that this individual, um, uh, uh, um, Organism, if if I can call it that, this individual uh, organism has found its own solution. Is is that solution not imminent somehow in its design? Uh, Even though, because if you modify the design in this predictable way, it will lead to this predictable novel solution, which suggests something other than choice in the way that I'm using the word um, for in my own individual lifespan, I, by feeling my way through the problem, come up with my solution to the problem, which won't be the same as my neighbors.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm in no way suggesting that that this system is as sophisticated as, let's say, human or, or even, you know, a mammalian problem solving in open environments. I think that there are many problem uh, sets where uh, in fact, uh, there may only be one or a few ways to solve the problem, and you, know, you can set up like, for a chimp or a human, you can set up some kind of a thing where the way to solve the problem is to go find the key, pull it out, you know, do this and that, and then you get your solution. The fact that there's only one way to do it doesn't, neglect from, from the fa- doesn't detract from the fact that you've got a being that never saw this problem before and yet is able to use available tools in a different way to get where they're going, right? So it's entirely possible that in that scenario, there really is only two ways to make a tubule, right? One way is multiple cells, one way is to bend yourself. There may not be any other way to do it. I'm, I don't know. Um, the interesting thing is to me that what, what makes this an example of a novel problem solving, again, not as sophisticated as what the other systems can do, is that neither of those things, you know, when we say it's imminent, it's, it's imminent in the sense that you, ha- you were given by evolution the parts. So you have a cytoskeleton. If you didn't have that, that would be hopeless, right? So you're given the parts. But what you were not given is any selection pressure in the past to know how to do this. Because it's never happened, both in the xenobot case and in this case, these are completely novel, uh, you know, you, you were never trained, uh, or, or either, you know, in the behavioral case, you would be trained in the evolutionary case, you would have a prior history of selection for it. As far as we know, these things, I, I, have, I have other examples, here's, here's another example, um, uh, planaria flatworms, when you put them in a solution of barium, their heads explode because barium is a non-specific potassium channel blocker. So they can't pass potassium through their cell memories. The heads explode within two weeks. They grow a new head that's completely barium adaptive. doesn't care about barium whatsoever. And if you look uh, what's different about the barium adapted head with the original head, there's only a handful of genes that were up and down regulated out of tens of thousands that they have to solve this particular problem. Now, barium is something that you never find in nature ever. And so, so this is, you know, in a, in a, in a let's say 20,000 dimensional space of all the different genes you could turn on and off, you have to find that small number and you don't, you don't have very long, um, two weeks is not a long time for these cells, uh, to find the right complement that will allow you to solve that physiological stressor, that, which, which evolutionarily has never come up before using the tools that you have, which are various other transporters and did, you know, a few other things. So, you know, I I agree with you that it's not as sophisticated as full on uh, mammalian problem solving but I think we are seeing novelty in the sense of reusing the tools. I mean, it's kind of, it looks like at every IQ test I've ever seen, like here, here are five objects, use it to, to, to you know, to, to, to hold this candle up on the wall or something. And, and you say, well, how am I going to do that? And you sort of figure it out. That's, that's the, these are the examples that, that we see, you know, re- reuse of the tools you have in novel circumstance.
1: Well, um, it's 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 really fascinating. What you're saying is fascinating and 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 really important. Um, so Karen said earlier we 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 had uh, thought up some questions for each other um, uh, uh, prior to this meeting, and what you're saying now leads naturally to one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I I accept. Um, in fact, it was it was partly you that persuaded me. Uh, your, you know, your work that persuaded me that we should, we should speak of uh, th- this level of process that you're describing here. We should speak of it as co- as cognition. That's what it is. You know, it's uh, there's no there's no difference between <laughs> between the the the, the processes uh, that you're describing uh, in terms of what they actually do, what they actually are, how they actually work. They are this is cognitive problem solving. This is exactly what we're talking about. So, my question to you is that: Do you think that all that all cognition is conscious cognition? Is, is is or is there a distinction between conscious and unconscious cognition, or conscious and non-conscious cognition? And and if if there is such a distinction, you know, why is there such a distinction? And 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 uh, and and how do we how do we draw it? How do we distinguish between conscious? And non-conscious cognition. If we're going to use the word cognition uh, all the way down, uh, as you're persuading us to do, yeah,
2: boy, yeah, I, I've thought a lot uh, about this, and uh, you know, you may have seen. I, I don't talk about consciousness a lot in, in my work. I, I mainly focus on on cognition, and so so I don't have a strong. I, I don't feel that uh, I, I I have a strong answer to this. So I will kind of give some thoughts, but um, I, I don't. I don't think I have a strong answer. Uh, my my gut feeling is that um, I, in, in working backwards from whatever it is that we are down to a, a single sort of quiescent cell oocyte, I don't find any sharp line that I can draw where I think, okay, here's where consciousness winks out. So from that perspective, I'm tempted to say that all cognition has some, degree or type of consciousness associated with it. I'm sort of leaning in that direction because, because I'm not finding any any kind of sharp place where it makes sense to say, here's where it stops. Uh, I I think that our, our, our fundamental problem with this, which is the problem of other minds, is that we're dealing with an N of one example, each of us uh, personally, and then also evolutionarily. We really don't have experience with a wide range of other types of consciousnesses, we only really know the one that we have, in the, the example of, of humans and whatnot um, that we have we have scientifically. So, uh, I think that uh, I, I'm I'm pushed towards thinking that there is some type of uh, some type of consciousness accompanies all cognition because I don't know where to put the cutoff, and I don't know how we would test it. You know, other than I mean, the only thing I can think of so you know to be able to test it so I had so I had this this thought experiment you know how can we um, how, how, can, how can we move from from a third person a typical scientific investigation of of uh, mind which tends out turns out to be like behavior and physiology is what we do in third person to a first person kind of answer of, of what is it like to be x and y and so you can sort of imagine the spectrum right on the one hand Here's a brain, I'm a scientist studying this brain. I've got some electrodes and some MRI and some other things in there and, uh, and it all comes out on a, on a monitor in some massaged way, the data, and then I can see it with my retina. And so what I'm really studying is behavior and physiology. I'm not really studying the affect of what it's like to be this, this organism. And then I can say, well, why do I have this monitor uh, in the way here? Why don't, why don't we take, take the data that comes out of it? and I'm going to plug it directly, into my brain, maybe through my retina, maybe somewhere else, but I'm going to directly, uh, I'm going to instrumentize these, um, these electrodes the way that people now have prosthetic senses, right? You can, you can have all kinds of different senses that you can, that you can integrate into your, into your brain that are novel. And, and so, and so that, that gets me a little closer. And after a while I say, you know, but my electronic interface is really kind of low resolution compared to what to biology does. Let's just fuse our brains together. Right. And you can do this certainly certainly at earlier with with um, uh, with with uh, axolotls and other organisms that are much more plastic in adulthood. You can you can literally fuse fuse the brain together. And then we have a situation that basically the fusion has similar, I think, similar uh, kinds of uh, qualities as the two hemispheres stuck together in the first place. There's a there's biological tissue connecting connecting these two um, these two regions. And I think then what happens is that you don't really find out what it's like to be that other creature, but you do find out what it's like to be a composite creature made of both of you the same way that you and I know what it's like to be a composite creature of our two hemispheres and all the stuff that's in there uh, you know, along, the, along the other dimensions. And so so I think by, by th- this kind of... Pr- now, now, what happens there is that you, unlike normal third-person science, you don't you don't get to remain unchanged while you do these experiments. I think these kind of experiments would change you radically, but then you get to find out something about what it's like, uh, from a, from a first person perspective in the absence of that, I don't really know how we can say anything, uh, really definitive about, about consciousness. And the, and the thing that bothers me about, uh, prob- about the, about the science of consciousness is, is this, this, this is what I think is really the hard problem. For, for every other field, when, when they're working on some theory, we have some idea of the format of the predictions of that theory. So, so, so it's, whether it's quantitative, it'll be numbers or equations or something, we have some idea of what, what do the predictions look like. Even if we don't have the theory and we don't have the predictions, we, we know what they're going to look like. I don't know what the format of a of a correct theory of consciousness is going to look like. So if somebody says to me, "Here's a you know here's a here's a standard creature," or "Here's a standard creature with a third um, a hemisphere sort of grown in during development," or "Here's something else," and and if I had a correct theory of consciousness, what would it output? Would it output? It, it, you know, numbers and, and behavioral predictions don't do it because that's not the study of consciousness. that's the study of behavior. What would it actually output? I don't, I don't know what that would look like. Would it be uh, poetry, art? Would it be something that puts you in the same or at least tries to put you in the same um, affective state as whatever you're looking at? I, that, that's, the, you know, it, it seems different to me than every other uh, kind, of, kind of typical third person science, because in those cases, we know what the output can be right so so that's anyway so so that's a that you know i guess that's a that's a long-winded statement of my ignorance that i really don't know um aside from actually becoming uh, physically connected to these uh to to another to another organism to know what it's like to be a composite i don't know how we say much about the first person um conscious experience
0: i <clears throat> i'd kind of like to jump in here for a second because you brought up poetry and art and uh I have to take a drink of water because I'm a little nervous talking about this. <laughs> but if I think about consciousness from the human level, and maybe there does need to be another category, maybe there is something besides consciousness that it is to be human. I mean, I've seen all the cartoons of how they're Xing off all the things that we used to think it meant to be human because now AI can do that as well. But maybe there is an additional thing that it means to be human. And let me just throw this out here. Um, What what I do as an artist when I'm painting, and I think it's very similar to what a musician does, uh, to what a composer does when they're composing a piece of music. Um, It is said that Mozart claimed that a symphony would arise in his brain in an instant, complete. And then he went through the process of um, arranging all the different parts and then writing down the musical notation and, and the, um, the the rhythms and all of those things that would make up each instrument's part of that piece of music. And then when he got it all written down, then the instrument instrumentalists would come in and then they would begin to play it. And then when they play it with their own um flexibility in the way that they allow their expression through the instruments and the whole thing arises and it all lines up, then you have the symphony that was in his mind in the beginning. So when I paint, an idea will come to my mind. And from that moment on, I am trying to express that idea on a canvas And that involves having the canvas and the tools and the materials, the paint and so forth. But there is also in my brain, all the things that I have integrated about the elements and principles of art and design through the centuries and my own aesthetic and my own ideas of beauty and of meaning and all of that. And so as I'm painting every stroke that I make, well, first of all, From the moment of the first stroke, I have delimited what can be the final result because each subsequent stroke is limited by the previous strokes. I can no longer get to my original perfect image that was in my brain because my hands have made some choices that may have not been perfect choices. But every stroke that I make is building up the texture and the The rhythm and the harmony and the unity of this piece of art, working through all the elements and principles until some. And and part of the way that I work is like an opponent processing where I create chaos and then I look in the chaos to see where the patterns are in the chaos and I draw the patterns out of the chaos and then I begin to paint with the patterns until finally the work of art arises. So it seems to me that there is, there is some sort of top-down thing that's happening where I know what I'm working towards, but the thing that I'm working towards came to me in a moment. And then I have to reach that thing in the same way that the cells have to make this decision in a moment in order to reach this correctness that they're looking for. But it's coming down through levels. Every level is moving down into the next level, into the next level, into the next level. In the same way that you think about the inside and the outside of something, like at a mechanical level, you can think of a watch. The inside of the watch has all sorts of complicated stuff going on in it. But for me on the outside, all I have to deal with is the, the dials. You know, all I have to do is read it, maybe push a few buttons. I don't have to know what it's like to be the inside of the watch in order to utilize the watch. And so I wonder when you have a community of cells, the community of cells doesn't know what it, doesn't need to know what it's like to be an individual cell, but they do need to know what they're working towards. In order to use the cells together to build this thing that they're working towards. Now, I'm not a cognitive neuroscientist or a biochemist or any of those things, but but these are the things I think about.
1: Yeah, well, I think what you've just described um, the where it um, where it interdigitates with what Mike and I are discussing is more. Uh, it's more Mike's field than mine. Uh, you, you, you're talking about this idea, I'm a salamander. <laughs> uh, all of these things are going to happen, but in the end, I'm gonna be a salamander and then I'll stop. Um, that, that seems to be the analogy that, that, that you're using that, that uh, and, and then all of these multiple routes by which one gets to what nevertheless uh, was a pre-existing, a preconception of salamanderhood. Am am I following you correctly, Karen?
0: Well, yes, except that I am I am the thing that you're working on, (laughs) right? I am the human consciousness, and and that's the way that that I work. And I can imagine I could tell the same story, going all the way down through all the levels. I think I could I could tell that same story at the at the community of cell level because the community is working here's the thing about art, you're working within a set of constraints, a very tight set of constraints. And that's what creates, that's what enables the creativity. If I had no constraints, then the path ahead of me would be combinatorially explosive. I would have no idea what the next step is. But because I have this tight set of constraints that I work within, then the next step makes itself available to me. Maybe a variety of next steps make themselves available to me, but I can choose between them. But if I had to look at an infinite array, I wouldn't be able to move forward. I think the same problem happens for the cells. As long as they stay in community, they can solve these problems because they're working together with this connection. But if a cell breaks off and decides I'm going to go off and do my own thing, it becomes cancer. It becomes a reciprocally narrowing static thing that is ultimately going to create death for the organism so instead of the community thriving the community dies because the connection was lost and i think there's something similar going on in the consciousness that that there is a connection that has to be there upward <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there are these levels that go down through and go back up again. The whole thing is a is a loop.
1: Yeah. Well, within my way of thinking, that, that and this also t- touches on the split brain stuff uh, that Mike was referring to earlier. That that, that connection um, is is brain stem uh, is located way down uh, in the in the stem. Uh, which is where your your sort of fundamental sentient selfhood arises. So, so just a raw experience of being. Um, and then all of this elaboration um, that uh, 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 of the higher stories, um, you know, that's that's now the picture that comes to my mind from, from what you're saying. The unifying, so all the little all the swarm intelligence, all of these little modules that are doing these little specialized things. Uh, what unifies them is that they're all in the service of um, one feeling being trying to carry on existing. Um, but I'd like to go back to what Mike said um, about um, you know when I, in my my question uh, to you Mike about um, cognition versus consciousness. Um, I, I, uh, I I I absolutely uh, agree that there's no sharp dividing line, you know, but the fact that there's no sharp dividing line doesn't mean that the thing goes all the way down. You know, you can, you can say, I agree, there's no sharp dividing line, um, but to the extent that there is such and such functionality, to, to that extent, you know, one, one speaks of, of feeling. Um, so, you know, the fact that you uh, are a biological creature and it feels like something to be you Um, And then you say, well, you know, it seems like the same sorts of processing is going on all the way down. Uh, You know, therefore, I can't exclude the possibility that it feels like something to be all that processing all the way down. Uh, I I think that that's plausible. That also doesn't necessarily follow. You know, it's correct. um, Yep. Now, um, the... The, the fact, again, sticking with this very simple uh, the, the problem of other minds that the, the only thing we've got is our own experience uh, of what it's like to be a mind, uh, what it's like to be a human mind, um, and uh, within my own experience, you know, I, I think there's something really interesting, which is that I am not aware of so much of what's going on within me. You know, so so. Um, I, I think that the, 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 the simple example I gave earlier of when respiratory control becomes conscious tells us something about you know what consciousness when consciousness is required and when it's not required. Um, and without repeating my whole argument you know i I, I, I think that um, studying that transition, what brings it about uh, is 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 one way in which we can uh, begin to um probe um the f- first person uh, 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 there, there is an empirical access to to the problem by the first person now i uh, am um f- for my sins you know i mean i i, I really uh, uh, did something crazy uh, for a neuroscientist which is that i trained in psychoanalysis precisely because of the problem that you're talking about you know that that we are constrained by the the methods uh, and, and um, canon of, of third-person science. And, and uh, you, you, you literally, in my view, cannot have a science of the mind if you exclude the first-person perspective, uh, because that's what a mind is. It is the first-person perspective. And you know, we've done great violence to the, this uh, part of nature in the history of psychology. Uh, by trying to exclude that that uncomfortable fact about minds. Minds are subjective. Um, And so for all of its faults, that is why I trained in psychoanalysis. I wanted to to take seriously the subjective nature of the mind and see what can we learn from the first-person perspective about how it works. Um, And the... uh, uh, the 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 thing that I learned uh, as uh, well, first of all, uh, through undergoing psychoanalysis myself, which is a big part of the training for psychoanalysis, and then from conducting psychoanalyses. And I'm linking back to what you were saying, Corin. You said, "Well, I'm I'm a human being. Let me tell you what it's like when I try. You know, when I do such and such." And you know, that's what psychoanalysis at its best is. Is that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to systematically, uh, uh, with all of the difficulties uh, in, in studying subjectivity, it's trying to systematically study a, a very large number of human subjects um, uh, from the point of view of what can we learn about what makes us tick uh, from the perspective of of being uh, um, a, 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 a sentient, subjective uh, human. And one of the things that it led us to in psychoanalysis, which is, why I ended up coming back to because uh, uh, I mean I I didn't want to be an analyst I wanted to see what could we bring into neuroscience from psychoanalysis in order to address this this problem that Mike's referring to of of you know the, you, you need to have a first person perspective if you're going to study consciousness and 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 if you're going to equate mind with consciousness it's the only way you can do it well that psychoanalysis is one way you know of going about doing it and, and what I learned there. Is the centrality of affect the centrality of feeling uh, in in it, one of the things that you miss when you study the mind from a third-person point of view is the importance of affect because affects can only be felt, um, and you know wh- when you study human beings subjectively uh, from from that using that kind of methodology, you learn it's all about feelings. You know everything that we do is in the service of what you know of what it feels like. Um, and uh, so that's what led me, you know, down, down, down that path. And, um, but to come back to a third-person perspective, I, 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 you know, I, I, I really, I, 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 I sympathize entirely with your, your, your confronting the problem of other minds directly and saying this just kind of this just, I don't know, Mark, but how to answer your question. There's nothing to be done. You know, it's like short of, uh, you know, uh, becoming uh, conjoined uh, with uh, another brain, uh, which in any event changes it into, you know, uh, it's no longer, I'm not knowing what it's like to be that other brain because now we're right. conjoined. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I really am sympathetic with the the gravity of the problem of other minds, but I think that um, they are sort of, there are some, some third person starting points, you know, like, um, What makes it? Of course, everything has a subjectivity in the sense that there's a perspective. You know, you can say it's just a spatial reference point. Uh, If you take your spatial reference point is, uh, you know, this computer, uh, then the the from the perspective of the computer, there's you know, there is such a thing geometrically speaking. Um, But but, uh, when does it become plausible to? to entertain the possibility that there is something it is like to be, uh, to to, to assume that perspective. I don't think that it's equally plausible. As I was saying earlier, you know, a grain of sand, it's not equally plausible that Mm -hmm. there's something it is like to be a grain of sand, than that there's something it is like to be the sorts of processes you described, you know, at the, even at the unicellular level, uh, it seems plausible there and then you know you've got to start breaking that down and saying why why is it more plausible um that it's there's something it is like to be a cell or a fetus or a or a salamander yeah and and why is it implausible that this that this or why does it at least to me it's implausible but you know you can't just say my intuition is it's implausible you want to start uh, uh, delineating what are the mechanics of a of a grain of sand which makes it unlikely that there's yeah. something it would like to be one and, I just uh, want to
0: mention here that um, that Mike has to leave in 10 minutes. And so I just want to tell you that if when he goes, it's not unexpected. So, Mike, did you want to respond to that?
1: In your um, 10 minutes, please respond to that and tell us what are the mechanics <laughs> that uh, make it plausible to speak about uh, sentient yeah. subjectivity?
2: Yeah, um, I think, well, look, I, I, th- I mean, you're right on the money, of course. Uh, I, everything you said, I, I agree with. Um, one interesting thing, and, and, and I'm certainly not the best person to uh, re-capitulate all that reasoning, and so, so you, know, you, you, know, you could have them on, uh, Karen, and see, but, um, uh, but both Carl Friston and Chris Fields and maybe other people are working on uh, recasting basic physics using some of the same active inference kind of dynamics that we use for a lot of the biologicals. And so if that project works out now, I want to be clear, you know, uh, panpsychism, the the, the problem with with traditional panpsychism is that. If you just simply take existing physics and then sort of paint on oh all of that plus by the way you know all the electrons are having like hopes and dreams like that doesn't that doesn't help anybody that that's you know that that's that's useless but what they're doing is something quite quite different which is recast basic physics to look exactly like the kinds of dynamics that we're using to analyze uh, cognitive systems and to the extent that if if that project pans out then it isn't uh, unreasonable to say that, right, the thing that makes it plausible is a specific kind of predictive interactions with the outside world and, and so on. And by the way, that goes all the way down to uh, whatever it goes down to, and then what life is good is, 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 is scaling up, right? So the, of course the basic, the, the real point of panpsychism is to understand the scaling. So why is it that, you know, um, it's very simple things like, like rocks and, and particles all they can do is least action kinds of things. so they can find lowest you know lowest free energy formulations and, and so on. But but larger biologicals can can, can work towards much larger goals. And, and, and you know, I've been working on this story of scaling of goals, but all my stories begin with cells and up. We, you know, I don't really deal with what happens before that. But, but, but there is work on that. So I think it's not impossible that we end up with a kind of uh, retelling of basic physics that basically makes it very hard to, uh, to, to, to stop that, that plausibility from, from going all the way down. The thing that I find the intuition pump about all of this, that I find really helpful to really get a full grasp of, um, how, what, what a tight spot we're in is basically the thing that, uh, science fiction has been dealing with for, for a couple of hundred years now, which is that, you know, there you are, um, you're, you're, you know, you're trained in neuroscience, psychoanalysis, everything else. And one day, Spaceship lands on your front lawn. Uh, this this thing sort of wheels itself out, and you start having a conversation with it that looks very much like the conversations that were published recently in this whole um you know thing about lambda right and 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 uh, the, the, all of that. So so it's so it's telling you how happy it is to see you and look I've traveled all this way I'm delighted to meet another mind and you know hands you a poem and some other stuff and so now you're saying okay so. What do I think of this creature? I'm certainly not going to find anything resembling a cortex. That seems unlikely. I'm probably not going to find any of the uh, typical structures that I'm used to looking at. I see lots of quasi intelligent behavior. I see the fact that it's passing some version of the Turing test with me here. And now I have a problem and it's not only a scientific problem, it's a moral problem because the question now is, do I get to take it apart and see what makes it tick? Or is this another being to whom I owe you know, rights and respect and, and, and all the things that we're used to uh, uh, giving to, to, to other minds? And, uh, and so, so what is it that we then start looking for? I mean, I think people, uh, th- there's this whole outrage about, the, you know, well, you can't just use the Turing test. That's, you, know, you get fooled by that. Fair enough and then and then and then they say well you know it should have a brain and this and that well in this case no you wouldn't expect it to have a brain and i ser- i think it's implausible to think that in the whole universe is only one class of minds and those look like our brains i think that's that's pretty crazy so what do we then look for right like i mean so so i'd love to hear your take like how, do you, can, can you psychoanalyze this thing and sort of get some intuitions about what to expect like what would you look for in that case
1: yeah, so for, for me um, the uh, psychoanalysis just means taking the t- taking seriously uh, w- what can we learn about a, a system an organism uh, from the first person point of view in other words for, from interrogating its subjectivity that's that's all that psychoanalysis is at least that's what's interesting to me about psychoanalysis. So you know if you so, so if you were saying can you psychoanalyze such a system I mean of course it would be, uh, all that that means is w- w- how would you go about trying to ascertain from yeah. this agent what it's like to be it? And, 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 yeah. uh, and then, you know, what can you learn from that? Yeah. And then, uh, my field, uh, you know, which is the interface between that and neuroscience, uh, it would be and what are the neural correlates of that? And what can we learn about what the underlying mechanisms are and by looking at the neural correlates of these uh, subjectively reported states? Uh, what can we discern about what is it that explains both of them? You know, getting down to the fundamental mechanics, which is um, which is why I'm in another way very sympathetic with your project because I actually am uh, I'm, I'm very affay with that literature that you were referring to, um, uh, uh, Friston's uh, particular physics, and uh, Maxwell Ramsted just wrote a brilliant paper with him where they cite you quite a bit. Um, and it prompted me to ask Maxwell, "Are you have you become a panpsychist? <laughs> uh, and he said, no, I'm a pancognitivist yeah. uh, in Mike Levin's sense of the word. And yeah. this was why I was wanting to probe with you. What is the difference between yeah. between cognition and consciousness? Uh, what is the difference between a panpsychist and a yeah. pancognitivist? But I wrote a paper yeah. with, um, with Carl Friston in 2018 uh, in the Journal of Consciousness Studies, the title of which was how and why consciousness arises. Um, and it was pretty much the things I've been saying tonight about, the, about affect being the fundamental form of consciousness mm. and it being tied not to free energy uh, in and of itself. Uh, uh, you know, a, a free energy, I think, is valenced. I think it is. The, it just is bad for any self-organizing system to have rising free energy. Um, but that's that isn't the same as consciousness for me. Uh, it, it, it has to do with these categories that I was speaking of earlier, and uh, and then to do with the, um, you know, the, the kind of functionality that that becomes possible when you're registering those qualities, as I said, using the model example of air hunger. Why does it intrude on consciousness? So that sort of approach, um, he and I are very much on the same page. We wrote that paper jointly. I, I, I don't think that he would describe himself as a panpsychist. There's a you know, there's, there's a, self-organ, a, a, a purely monotonous, self-organizing crystal uh, doesn't have the kinds of dynamics that, yeah. that we are talking about. Yeah. Um, oh, so, I, I... The... go ahead.
2: Oh, sorry. Um, sorry, no, please, please finish.
1: No, I, I'm more or less sad. And I also see that we, we, we've got one and a half minutes left. So I think you should have the last word, Mike.
2: Um, well, all, all I'm going to say is, I mean, this, is, this has been uh, incredibly fascinating. I'm, I'm so pleased to have had uh, the chance to uh, speak to you about this, and um, yeah, thank you, Karen, for, for setting it up. And I, I'd love to, I'd love to talk more. I think uh, this issue of what do we do when faced with unconventional agents that have no familiar miles you know landmarks for us to look for so there are no neural as such correlates there's behavior but then a lot of people want to say well behavior is not sufficient because you can be fooled by these large language models and, and things like that so so if you don't have if you don't have behavior and you don't have anatomy to look at what is it that you're looking at right and i think i uh, you know i'll say i'll say i i'm a pan i'm i'm kind of agnostic on the pan-psychic, panpsychism thing. I. I'm just not sure how we resolve that problem. So I don't make any strong claims about it. But I think thinking hard about uh, synthetic systems, whether made by us or whether discovered somewhere else, uh, what are the criteria by which we make these decisions? So I think that's, you know.
0: Well, Mark, you had this great question. You you said that you were going to describe your project to develop a conscious AI and ask Mike about it. I'm wondering if we could do this again and just approach that question. I would love
1: to hear about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Would
0: you have time for that, Mark?
1: Yes, I think that's an excellent idea because I mean, you can see how that trenches on everything that Mike's just said. It's all of, um, I mean, that's, and all of the methodological and epistemological problems that we are facing in that project. By the way, in my team, there's somebody else who you might know, Mike, who's Ryan Smith. Uh, You don't know him? No. So, um, but in fact, we had a meeting yesterday and Maxwell joined us uh, and we're talking about exactly these things. We are trying to develop a conscious AI um, uh, precisely because I believe those, those um, uh, mechanics um, it's, are independent of, uh, of our human biology. I think that if you, know, if you believe you can explain in terms of those Fristonian um, um, uh, statistical mechanical terms, you can, you can explain uh, how, how consciousness arises, then you should be able to engineer it. Um, mm-hmm. But then the problem is the one that you were mentioning. And once you've, once you've engineered it, how do you demonstrate that you've done so uh, in a way that will persuade your colleagues? So I think that would be, a, 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 a I mean, just any opportunity to have another conversation with you, I would enjoy enormously. Fantastic. If we could start with that topic, uh, that would be a, a double bonus.
0: Okay. Super. That's a, let's, that's let's a trailer that for our next episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. appreciate hey, it. Thanks, very much. Much. Honor, Thanks so much. Honored to Mike. talk to both of you.
2: Likewise. Next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.